and illness can become an all-consuming experience. Hi, and welcome to I Am Not My Pain podcast. I am your host, Melissa, a chronic pain sufferer for over 20 years, and I know firsthand how pain can easily take over your life and isolate you from others. But the truth is, we are so much more than our pain and illness, and we are not alone. There are millions of fellow warriors on their own journey. Join me as we hear real stories of people living with pain and illness, their challenges, their victories, and the treatments they use to get through the day. I am not my pain, and neither are you. Welcome back to I Am Not My Pain podcast. On today's episode, we are going to touch on how navigating through a chronic illness and chronic pain affects our mental health. Pain and other symptoms naturally create the yearning for answers, for solutions, and for validation that what we are feeling is in fact real. Already hurting and scared, you begin a journey through doctors, their personalities, treatments, including medications and their side effects, insurance, possible financial strains, your family's judgments, other people's judgments. And of course, let's not forget that you're dealing with your actual pain and symptoms. What if doctors don't know what's wrong? What if others don't believe in your pain? How do you respond to those people? And what if you eventually try a treatment and it fails? How does all of that ultimately affect your mental health and perspective of yourself and your life? My guest today is an amazing warrior named Danielle Bellis. She's from upstate New York. Danielle just happens to be a licensed mental health therapist and a credentialed alcoholism and substance abuse counselor who manages a long list of chronic conditions such as fibromyalgia, Hashimoto's, uh, psoriatic arthritis, osteoarthritis, (laughs) degenerative disc disease, tendonitis, failed back surgery, and more. She remembers having pain in her body since she was a teenager, but the real investigation into her pain began in her 30s and 40s. Danielle raised two girls by herself and even accomplished her master's degree and changed careers during her search for answers to her pain. She enjoys reading, taking pictures, cooking, baking, playing with her dogs, going new places, and riding the spider with her husband, which I just love that. Being a mental health therapist gives her a wealth of knowledge and an interesting perspective, which I definitely plan to tap into today. Danielle, thank you for coming on the show today. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. And I would really love to hear, you know, a little bit about your health journey so far, especially your search to find the diagnosis and to really have your pain and symptoms taken more seriously. It's been a long road. I first started like I said, feeling pain when I was a teenager and they attributed it to growing pains. Mm. I went to college, started work and it just, as I got older, it got worse. And I noticed it was happening more and more. So I first started with my primary and at the time they, he thought I had MS because yes, I'd been to the emergency room multiple times because right-sided weakness. Mm. And I had a lot of the symptoms. So they ended up sending me to a neurologist and I had all these tests done for MS three times 
including a spinal tap, which was horrifying. I've had one too, too actually, not fun. Oh, so painful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and they were like, you don't have MS, it's depression. Well, that neurologist did not like my response because at that point I knew that it wasn't depression. I was mm -hmm. very happy in my life. I didn't have any signs of depression. And I tried to explain that to him and he's like, no, you need counseling. And wow. I was like, yeah. I really wanted to tell him what for, but I was polite. That's very kind of you because I would maybe had choice words. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. I never went back to him. I ended up going, they sent me to a specialist in Syracuse and that was actually a multiple sclerosis center. And they finally ruled it out for good. That's where I had the spinal tap done. Mm. So I went back to the primary, went to an arthritis doctor. I'd been going to her for five years. We tried lupus drugs. We tried, you name it. She tried it, even though she didn't agree with what I had, she would let me try. Mm -hmm. I ended up going to a fibro specialist and he was the one who said, yes, it's definitely fibro. So they put me on Lyrica. I gained 30 pounds in a month and said, absolutely not. Because I was not liking that. No, I was always very thin and to put it on that quick and be so bloated looking, it, it upset me because of my appearance mm -hmm. it, and it added to the physical pain. So I stopped that. And then eventually when I, I think I was living in another state then when I came up here, my primary sent me to pain management, mm. which they specialize in managing pain. So when I went there, it turned out the doctor, I've been going to her now five years, I think. She has fibro as well. And other conditions, has a daughter that has a kidney disease. She knows about pain. She understands how I feel. And she changed my life. Mm -hmm. Finally found that chemical cocktail that works after many trials and tribulations. But she, I see her probably every three months now, unless something comes up and then I go there, but she's more of my primary care than my primary now. Mm -hmm. She incredible. does it all. So glad you found her because that takes, I'm sure it took you, I mean, how many years do you think it took you to get to that, to her? Mm -hmm. And how many doctors? <laughs> how many doctors? How many treatments, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's like a never ending cycle until you find the right one. That's why I tell people, if it is not the right fit, there's other doctors out there and you keep fighting, even if you're exhausted. But the problem is we get exhausted and then financially we get strained. It's a vicious cycle. And then insurance may not want to cover what the doctor recommends or believes in it. You finally kind of found something that helps you kind of keep your symptoms in check to a point. I mean, you still have issues and you deal with things all the time, but it's definitely more manageable. I heard too that when you have surgery with fibromyalgia, it can really flare the fibromyalgia. Is that right? I mean, I was reading about fibromyalgia just before this episode and I read about that. That has to be scary that right before you go into a surgery, when you know you have to have a surgery, 
you know that that could be really bad for your fibromyalgia. Exactly. And it, it does exacerbate it. I've had uh, three, one, two, three, four, five different back procedures and Oof. pelvis procedures due to degenerative disc disease. Um, and it, every time it increases my fibro and I know to expect a couple days after surgery, a big flare. I do notice that with my fibro treatment, I always have a certain level of pain mm -hmm. every day. It's when it gets so bad that I'm in bed or I'm laying on a heating pad with massage and taking extra medications. Right. Yes. I'm never without pain completely. Right. You get, it's amazing what you can adjust to and adjust your life around when you have to. So I remember in our preliminary talks, some things that you were saying, a lot of people around you, I mean, not only that doctor who thought it was depression, but a lot of your friends and other things really didn't fully believe in your symptoms or in your pain. And, you know, how do you, how did you deal with people doubting your symptoms when they did? I would isolate. Mm -hmm. I would avoid people. I stopped complaining to the people that called me a hypochondriac, which was probably the most painful thing I'd ever heard. Right. to the um, gut. Yeah, it did. It went right to the gut and it stuck with me for a long time. And I started to think maybe I am. Well, how could you not? Yes. I mean, and then you even have a doctor when you're like, I'm not depressed. I'm, I'm the happiest I've ever been, but you still have a medical professional in this, that little voice in your head. That's like, well, maybe they know something I don't, or maybe I'm not feeling what I'm feeling. And you just feel like you're going nuts and you do, you self-isolate and you also stop talking about it because you don't want to hear their response and you don't want to listen to the comments. And that, that is, that is one of the hardest things. I mean, how, so you just self-isolated when, when that happened, when did you stop that? When you had the diagnosis? I actually think I still do it. Really? If, if there's one particular person or a couple of people that I'm associated with, it's never been my family. It's usually been friends mm. and associates at work and such. I avoided her for a long time and it did damage our friendship because we'd been friends since we were, I guess, 13 and I'm 53 now. So that has says a lot about how long we've been friends, but she never could get it. Right. And it caused me so much emotional pain to know that someone that knew me from when it started right. thought I was a hypochondriac. And she would tell me, you're a hypochondriac. There's nothing wrong with you. Wow. So if someone does that to me now, I kind of get that isolation when I'm home, but when I'm around them, I'll either retreat into myself or there's times I've spoken up and said, you don't know what you're talking about. And if you could live in my shoes for an hour, you wouldn't be able to withstand what I do. Right. I try to educate at times, but it's still, even with my knowledge of being a mental health counselor and knowing skills to make it, it still can be very painful and make me just 
need to isolate and use coping skills to feel better. Right. Well, and I think it, it brings up even me, you know, 23 years, I know you've been dealing with it more and things, certain things still hit hard, even though I have dealt with this for 23 years and I've dealt with the comments and I've dealt with the little jabs on why aren't you doing this and why aren't you going to school or, you know, you just need to be pushing a little bit harder and I'm thick skin now, like this doesn't buy, but it still bothers me. And I still come home and I still, you know, envelop in those thoughts and I don't want to, and I try not to, but it's hard to do that because it instigates those feelings when it first started and it shoots all those feelings when I didn't know if the pain was real. And because mine was a little different, you know, I had surgery and I had surgical pain after the surgeries. But years after the surgery, I still had the pain and it was like, well, the surgery's healed. So why do I still have pain? And people thought I was making it up. Well, doctors and certain people thought, you know, what she could be doing a little bit more than what she's doing. The pain can't possibly be that bad. And I tried to put on, and part of it was me trying to put on a good face when I was around them so that they didn't think of me as sick. But at the same time, they just never, you know, got that after I saw them, I'd go home and be in bed for three days. And I was only with them for two hours. But I think people don't like when people aren't feeling well, they don't know how to respond to it. And they don't like what they don't know. I just wish more people would pause before they opened their mouth with those terms and those words and, and don't realize how much they hurt and how much they do create such a surrounding stigma with chronic illness and pain that we are, you know, we feel that guilt and that shame, like, well, why can't we do this? And why can't we be stronger and be more brave and, and conquer this pain and do everything we want to do and live our lives and pretend that the pain's not there when it's, we are doing the best we can, but it's the pain's there. I mean, it's there. We can't shake it. And it's something we've learned to live with in a way, but at the same time, you never really fully learn. You do your best. But yes, that is what those comments do. And I wish, you know, my listeners, if you don't have chronic pain and illness and you know someone who does, to take that pause before you open your mouth and really either try to understand their disorder a little more before you speak or honestly just listen. I mean, that is what we need more than anything is a listening ear, an empathetic ear, and just to not talk because it is more harm than good you are causing by your comments. You think you're helping. I mean, that's a majority of people really think by telling you that, and I'm sure your friend thought, well, I'm going to be giving her tough love and I'm going to say that, but yeah, that's, it's so true. You know, having those opinions around you, did it change the opinion of yourself during that time? Like, did you have a different feeling of who you were in that time? Did it shake who you were a little? Absolutely to the core. Yeah. Absolutely to the core. It started, I'll never forget my now ex-husband. He would say, get up, get out of bed and do things. That's your problem. You're just lazy. You're not in pain. Mm -hmm. And having him not believe me, and I was, we got married when we were 20. We were so young. And not having his support made my self-esteem tank. And then having the friends and other people say all those things. 
I already had low self-esteem in the sense because I felt like crap and never wanted to do anything. I couldn't go out and have fun the way that I did when I was younger. I was always getting tired or hurting. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to stay home. But as I grew older, it was a little better getting a little bit of a Teflon skin and working on myself. And that increased my self-esteem. I mean, we all know that chronic pain, one of the side effects of chronic pain is depression and anxiety and low self-esteem. So you have to work really hard, which I did in finding positive supports, in finding ways to get rid of what you feel. Mm -hmm. I kept journals for years and it was a great way to just write something that you're feeling like, I feel like crap today and no one is being supportive. Um, to do positive affirmations about myself. Like I can get over this pain, this too shall pass, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, but I think not having support increases everything. Yes. Because you feel so alone and isolated. Right. And if you don't have that family support, because not everybody does, not everybody's as lucky. I mean, I had wonderful parents who always believed me, which was huge. And they Same. saw, <laughs> yeah, they saw me and they saw me die, like hurting so badly. They saw my face go pale and be in bed and they could see I was in physical pain and they never questioned it once, which was amazing. But I had outside family that really just couldn't get it, that really had a hard time. And I had some friends too. I mean, especially when the depression got bad, that was because how can depression not get bad? Your life changes dramatically. I'm living at home with my parents. My friends are finishing college. They're getting jobs. They're getting married. They're having babies. And I am still sitting here in my parents' house with chronic pain, not getting better, feeling like every treatment's failing, I'm failing as a person. And it was such a vicious cycle for me to pull out of and, and anyone really. And the depression got really bad. And I wish I had sooner reached out to the online community than I did back then. Now, it wasn't as big back then, I'm aging myself a little, but it became bigger. But I wish I had, and I really would recommend people to do that because they need to get out and realize they really aren't alone. I mean, we are a huge community of people and there's so many of us that, and I think honestly, every single person deals with something in their lifetime. And, but some people get more than others. And it's just important to recognize that you are not all by yourself and somebody else is going through what you're going through. But I wanted to ask, when did you decide to make that shift in your career to be a licensed mental health counselor? It, it was something I always wanted, but when I happened to divorce that lovely ex-husband, mm -hmm. I was a single mom. I'd been at home for seven years. So I went to a local college and said, what is a career in a school system so I can be off when my children are off? Ah. And so I was first a speech and language therapist. And I did that for 10 years. And as my 10 year was coming up, I had to, according to the state, get that master's degree. Oh, yes. So I was 
considering it, bouncing it and, you know, talking to my girls about it. And my girls were like, mom, it's time. You need to go be a counselor. And I thought to myself, yes, this has always been my something in the back of my head that I wanted to do. Right. But then I thought I personally had been in therapy for years off and on dealing with all of this among the other baggage, but dealing with all the pain. And I realized that if I followed that, it, not only would I benefit myself, but mm-hmm. I could benefit others because of that shared experience. Yeah. And I think it's incredible because of what your experience is with fibromyalgia and all the other issues you've had and all your back surgeries, you have such a unique perspective. I would love to see you as my therapist, because I think you would understand the chronic illness and pain situation better than anyone. And you would know the tendencies that we have to do those things and how to pull yourself out of those things. But I do know it's one thing to give the advice, another thing to take the advice. What are the pros and cons? I mean, here for you, like when you deal with chronic illness and being a mental health counselor. Thank you for the compliment that you would want to come and see me. I appreciate that. I tend to not listen to my own advice. it's, It's a horrible thing because I have all the tools and I know how to make it better for myself. But there's I'm, I get lazy and I don't want to do it or right. I make excuses to not do it. So I, I kind of get it from both sides, I think, because it's almost therapy for me to be a therapist for other people because I'm getting that shared support, even though they don't know they're supporting me. Mm-hmm. I mean, most of my clients know I have fibro and issues because I'm sometimes I miss work a lot. Right. And they're very understanding because I explain it, you know, why I'm out or what surgery is next, anything like that. But the separation for me became very evident when I was doing nothing. Mm. So I decided it was time for me to go back into therapy. And I hadn't been in therapy probably for 10 years. And I found a therapist who has the same credentials as I do. She's also an abuse counselor as well. And she gave me that outlet Mm -hmm. and gave me someone to look to, to give me advice because I ignored my own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And I think people that tend to want to help others have a tendency to forget about themselves or put themselves last helpers tend to do that. And, and even that way, I think if everyone could afford a therapist, the world would be a much better place. And that is just the truth. And there's nothing wrong with going to therapy. It took me a long time to go to therapy. My parents kind of forced me to, and I was just like, Oh, I don't need, you know, I don't need to go. And cause I still had that stereotype of like, you had to be a certain way to go to have to be in going to a therapist. And once I went, I was like, why did I wait? Like, this is great. And I'm just, I'm able to vent to somebody and they listen and they give me good advice. And I'm able to not feel so judged when I talk. I mean, they just had to find the right therapist. Cause I mean, there are therapists that do unfortunately do the judging and it did, I did have a one or two bad experiences and you know, you have to kind of find the one that works for you, just like a doctor. Uh, Absolutely. 
and you're the one that you mesh with, the one that you, you know, you can, you feel like their advice is hitting home with you and you can accept that advice and listen to it without being more upset or things like that. Cause it was, sometimes they do have to tell you things that are hard to hear or just, you know, thought provoking things that you're like, well, um, you know, I didn't think about it like that, but a lot of mine was just to get over. It's all my fault. That was my mentality. I, if I'm sick because it's all my fault, like if I had just done this, or if I just could do this, I'd be fine. And I'm just weak. And that is who I am. And I just, absolutely, that is yeah. exactly how I felt too. It's a story that we repeat the narrative. We go on and on and we can't, it's hard to break that. And it took me a long time to break it. And I'm still, I still have moments of that weakness, but it took me a long time to realize that I'm stronger than I ever thought I was. If you really look at what you've dealt with, you really look at it. And that's what my counselor did. She you know, pointed out like, okay, say this is your friend and your friend had to do this, this and have this happen. And then they moved on and this happened to them. And I was like, oh yeah, that is a lot. That is a lot of life changes. Wouldn't you have empathy for that person? And I was like, well, yeah, but it's different when it's me. Uh, it, it's funny how we all do that to ourselves so much. And we do tell ourselves little stories that we stick with. And it's interesting to finally look at those narratives that you tell yourself and try to pull those out of you a little bit, but it's still hard to not slip right back into it. It's an easy, easy slip. And I still have, you know, I'm not perfect by any means. I still have many slips, but I know too, I wanted to touch on this because you had mentioned had those back surgeries. I've had a lot of failed treatments. I mean, I've done so many treatments and they all failed. And that hope that you have for the treatment the downfall when it fails and then the repercussions afterwards it's crazy how did you handle your failed surgeries and treatments when they did fail with a lot of depression yeah frustration a lot of anxiety that i'm never going to get better no matter what i do just like you were saying that there's times you slip back i do that as well and i, I think most of us do right when I'm having like a bad pain weekend or something, and I'm watching my husband clean the house because I just can't. Mm -hmm. The failed treatments, so many medications, so many. Oh, yeah. Until the pain management doctor found the right cocktail mm -hmm. that works for me. And everybody's different and that was explained to me and that the medication thing became a little bit more accepting and knowing it was going to be a struggle and I may not know for a month or two after I start the medication if it's working but you have to try everything yeah because it's different for everyone the how they respond for example I tried acupuncture I tried infrared sauna I tried physical therapy. I tried exercise. I went to yoga. I did Tai Chi. There were some that failed and some that I do that are helpful. But the, the failed ones, so much money. Yes. And that's not the other thing. It's like, that's the kicker. You know, you're like, not right. only did it fail, but I just spent thousands of dollars and it failed nonetheless. And you had such high hopes. 
Because even exactly. though you pretend like you're going into it with that, like I always pretended like I'm just going to go in there with an attitude of I don't know. And that was my goal, you know, to not have too high of hopes, but I did. I mean, I wanted it to work. I mean, we wanted to help us. And then when it didn't, it was such a downfall of feelings and emotions. And then of course it inevitably went back to, well, it's my fault that it failed. And, and it always went back to that, no matter if it really wasn't or not. I mean, nothing to do with me. It could have been a medication that didn't work. It could have been a shot that didn't work. It didn't matter, but it always came back to that for me. It was always, you know, well, that's my fault. Like it didn't work because of me. And that's not the case. Logically, I knew that emotionally, another problem It's it's the way we work in a very interesting psyche. So I wanted to ask, since I do have a licensed mental health counselor on the call and so many people that will be listening do have chronic illness and pain and would want to pick your brain on what you would recommend, I think I as a, have a duty to ask. Want to hear Danielle's professional recommendations for coping with chronic illness? Please stay tuned for next week's episode. I want to thank Danielle so much for sharing her story and her challenges and for offering her expertise. Thank you to each of you for listening today. And please remember, you are not alone and you are not your pain. Like the show? Please subscribe and leave a review. Or do you want to be a guest? Simply email notmypain at heroescircle.org. Again, that is notmypain at heroes, H-E-R-O-E-S, circle.org. Your story matters, and we look forward to hearing from you.